you know, when I think of someone who might be reviewing slides, looking at every cell, looking at every nucleus of a cell, wondering, is this cancer? Is it not cancer? You want somebody who pays attention to all that detail, not somebody who says, yeah, it's kind of good enough. I think it's this. What You really want someone to nail that diagnosis. And I think that's, uh, that's a trait that Lily has. She's very detailed. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. One of the most interesting parts of pathology is the concept of lifelong learning. There are always opportunities to learn new things throughout your career. My guest today is Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. Dr. Magnani has been on the show twice before, and today we're going to talk about the third book in her Dr. Lily Robinson series called A Message in Poison. We'll also talk about how she applies the concept of lifelong learning as a writer, and then we'll talk about her monthly Poison blog. All right, here's Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. This is now your, your third time on the podcast, and I think the last time was probably well over a year ago, almost a year and a half now. And during that time, you've been doing a lot. So we want to talk a little bit about, well, mostly, I guess, about the the third book in the Dr. Lily Robinson series. But I think before we do that, why don't we kind of give sort of an overview of of what the series is and, and what it's about? Okay, well, thanks for having me here again, Dennis. I always love talking to you. And for those yeah, who yeah, haven't too. read any of my books, um, I write a series about a Boston pathologist who's been recruited by the U.S. government as a covert assassin because of her knowledge in poisons. And the book that we're going to talk about, A Message in Poison, I think to some extent completes Lily's personal arc, but it also takes on a new geopolitical mission. And I, one of the things people do ask me a lot of is like, where do you get, you know, your ideas from, from this, for the stories? And from the news, basically, because I think that that these are catastrophic problems that could happen, mass poisonings, threatening missile launches, control of geopolitical resources. And that's sort of book one, book two, book three, right, when you think about it. And to me, those are scary possibilities. So that's why I write about them. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Now now that you mentioned that, there are some sort of... They do kind of correspond to news events for sure. In the the third one, uh, in in particular, although you you use like a, a made up country in this one, yeah, rather than a, rather than a real one. Why did why did you go with making up a, a country? So for a message in poison, I used you're right, a made up country, Jacobus fan, and I did it because I didn't want to get into any of the details of what's the right government in a particular country, how does it work, because all those things could go wrong. So this way I had free reign to make it anything I wanted. And what what I find really interesting about this book, A Message in Poison, is that I wrote it long before Russia invaded Ukraine. And yet the plot in my book is essentially Russia trying to take over an adjacent country, albeit this one is a made-up country, to control some of its resources. And um, I just think that's so interesting that the books have, you know, even the missile launches in books two and talking about North Korea and those kinds of things, it's all around us. We hear it in the news every day. Yeah, that's true. You're a little bit... uh what's the word prophetic, I guess, in, in, in some of those aspects. All right. So let, let's get into a, a message in poison. Like you said, this is the the third book in the series. Now I'm curious how soon after you finished uh, or you published the second book, the power of poison, did you start working on the third book? So when I finish a, a manuscript, remember that it has to then go to the editor, it goes to the publisher. Uh, so I'm now writing the next book in the series after that's happened. And there's always that three to six month gap between when I finish a manuscript and when it actually gets published. So that three to six month gap, I'm already writing the next in the series. 
they have that time because when the ARC, which is the advanced reading copy, is produced by the publisher, you can send it out to various reviewers for comments. And those comments, if you want, can be included on a book jacket or on the back or you know, on your Amazon page or something like that. So it gives the publisher time to do any course corrections and and get some uh, kind of reviews. So during that time, are you allowed to make any changes to the book, like based on the the ARC reviews? Well, not major, not major changes. You know, I couldn't change the plot, for example. But if you found typos or... Someone pointed out, you know, you used a name incorrectly or whatever. Yes, little changes can be made in the arc. And that also is one of the the purposes of the arc. Some, you know, sometimes again it's sent out to different reviewers and it comes with a little disclaimer that says this is not a final copy. So yes, small changes can be made, not big changes. Okay. I understand. In the new book, A Message in Poison, in addition to most of the characters from the previous books, including my favorite, uh, John Chi, <laughs> uh, you, you also include a new character who's a forensic pathologist. And I'm curious about this character because he, he he's an interesting guy. Uh, can we can we talk about like what was your inspiration for for him? OK, so that character's name is Logan Pelletier. And he is this dashing, wealthy forensic pathologist. And he provides some, I'll call it romantic tension for Lily Robinson. And Mm -hmm. I wrote him that way in particular because he's the antithesis, in my mind, to the forensic pathologist you see portrayed in film or TV, you know, unattractive, quirky, something like that, right? And I want Lily to, you know, kind of have another smart, attractive doctor uh, to work with her because she's just come off this emotional roller coaster uh, ride that you have in book two. I've I've had reviewers write it as just feeling like they had to ring themselves out at the end of book two because it was just so so gut wrenching. And, you know, in that in book two, she learns that she the existence of her daughter, Rose, and she learns more about her lover, JP. And so by providing um, this new character, Logan Pelletier, it gives something to play off of. It gives the protagonist, you know, again, a little bit of of tension that I think I think it works well in the book. So that was one thought. And the other thought I had about putting in a forensic pathologist, and you know this, Dennis, is the way I feel about pathology. A lot of Mm -hmm. how I feel about the profession comes out in my books is, you know, forensic pathologists do a necessary job in this country. And I think they're underrated. And I wanted to depict someone who could have lived an easy life. Remember, this is a man who's come from great wealth, and he could live an easy life, but he chooses a gritty one because he wants to champion those who can't speak for themselves. And I don't know if you remember, but there's a part in the book where Lily is talking to him, and she wants to know why he chose forensics as a subspecialty. And he says to her, it's the standard line of giving voice to the dead, providing closure for families and getting evidence to nail the bad guys. So, you know, I just wanted to put that out there, um, put forensic pathologists in a very positive light. Yeah, I like that. And actually, I think Lily even says in the book somewhere that she has a lot of respect for forensic pathologists, that they're overworked and underpaid. Yes, exactly, which is true. (laughs) It is true. And he you know, his character, like you said, a little bit of, of tension, he kind of, I mean, in, di- in addition to being helpful in the investigation, he kind of complicates Lily's life a little bit, I think. Uh, very much so. <laughs> but that's yeah. what I said. She's coming off this, you know, kind of a roller coaster ride she had in book two. She's emotionally, I think, I don't want to say compromised, if you will, learn, you know, finding out the truth about her daughter. 
And she also has certain expectations, I think, of um, JP or Jean-Paul Marchand, who has been her her operative handler, if you will, uh, in all the books. Mm -hmm. And in fact, since the first story that came out in 2009 in, in the journal Clinical Chemistry, he was present. And I so I think that, you know, again, there's a lot going on there. So she... Yeah, she feels vulnerable at this point. Yeah, one thing I've noticed over the course of these three books is, you, you know, you get Lily's backstory a little bit more and a little bit more, but she's very conflicted about a lot of things. And I think, you know, her relationship with JP and her relationship with Dr. Pelletier, uh, it, it's it's part of that. She she becomes very conflicted about the two of them. Yes, you're, no, you're right. She has a lot of conflict in her life. Starting with the fact that she, you know, she's taken the Hippocratic Oath, she's a healer, and, you know, she's still going out there and working with this team to to basically rid the world of these bad people. Another one of the relationships in the book that I want to talk about is between Lily and Rose, who I, th I think you mentioned. So we find out in book two that Rose is actually Lily's daughter. And now Rose is kind of following in her, her mother's footsteps, and she's now a medical student. And at one point, Lily says to Rose, your keen ability to observe details, solve puzzles, and think a problem through would make you a wonderful pathologist. And I, and I love this line. This is a great description of a pathologist. Um, so how, how did you come up with this part? Yeah, well, Dennis, I've used that line, I think, before a little bit about pathologists being puzzle solvers, and I do see them that mm -hmm. way. And the other thing is that, you know, when I think of someone who might be reviewing slides, looking at every cell, looking at every nucleus of a cell, wondering, is this cancer? Is it not cancer? You want somebody who pays attention to all that detail, not somebody who says, yeah, it's kind of good enough. I think it's this. What You really want someone to nail that diagnosis. And I think that's, uh, that's a trait that Lily has. She's very detailed. Uh, she does see it in her daughter. And I think like most mothers and fathers, you know, many of them want their children to follow in their footsteps. And of course, the irony here that, you know, if you read book one, right, the queen of all poisons, is that Rose chooses to go into medicine because she's inspired by Lily Robinson, who she sees at a, a sort of a student night career conference thing. And, yeah. um, you know, that motivates her to to want to get out there and go into medicine, whether or not she'll end up being a pathologist. Who knows? You know, there's a little hint at the <laughs> at the end of book three about what she's thinking about. This is Rose. Yeah. Yeah. And she also kind of uh, develops a relationship with Dr. Kelly, who, uh, who is uh, Lily Robinson's kind of assistant. Right. Right. So Dr. Kelly has done his fellowship for two years with Lily. And he's gotten to know Lily's daughter, Rose, because she's a medical student at the same school. And they begin to develop a relationship, which I think Lily is 100 percent behind. So she's happy for her daughter. Yeah. So th this is like a little interesting look at sort of the process of, you know, becoming a uh, pathologist because you've got the medical student you've got the the fellow and you've got the experienced uh pathologist there uh so it's got like sort of all steps of, of of the process i guess yeah it's the whole team and and actually what's nice in this book is that kelly gives rose um cases to work at and so you know how i always put cases in all the books so you find now rose is solving some of those cases. She's working with Kelly. She's learning medicine uh, in a case-based way. And you're right, that is the process. And that's what we like to do um, when we are training residents and medical students. Now, I, I know we've talked before about how the, the problem solving or, or the, the puzzle solving aspect is kind of what, what you like the most about the field. And you put some of that into the character of Lily Robinson, but it seems like you're putting some of that into Rose as well. Kind of a, uh, I, right. don't, I don't know, a second generation of that. Yeah. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's the expression. 
Yeah, I right, think right. again, she's looking at both Kelly as a mentor, and remember, he's been trained by Lily, and she looks to Lily as more than a mentor. I think she sees her as almost a, in her mind, a substitute mother. Uh, she doesn't know Lily as her mother, and it it just sort of kills Lily to keep you know keep that information. Uh, from her, but um, you know, she goes to her frequently for advice because you know she's over now in uh, the United States. She's in Boston. She's away from her the mother she knows, and you know, there's some problems there. I don't want to go into all the detail because maybe there's spoilers there. But she feels somewhat alone and isolated, and Lily and Kelly provide that support that that Rose needs. Yeah. And, and, but then there's, that's another source of conflict for Lily because of course she can't tell Rose what their real relationship is. I know she doesn't want to put her in any danger. And um, that also provides again, conflict and tension between her and JP because Lily wants to reveal her situation and JP really doesn't want her to say anything. When we talked about the power of poison, we talked about kind of themes in that book. And it seems like, well, and and one of the major ones was that people aren't always what they seem. And it seems like here in A Message in Poison, it's it's a similar theme. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I when I think about the themes of the books, I think there are two overarching themes. So the first one, you're right, is, you know, sort of how well do you know people in your life? You know, what kind of secrets do we all keep? And, you know, it brought to mind someone that I worked with. I worked with this fabulous toxicologist years ago, many, many years ago. And he was a brilliant man, a fabulous teacher. And it was only after he he died an early death did I learn that he was called the dancing doctor and he used to do ballet in the black nativity. And I never knew that about him. And we'd worked together for all these years. And so I think of now that's a positive thing, but you think about Lily's case, um, you know, she has her toxicology practice, her service there. She teaches at the school, uh, but her academic colleagues don't really know much more about her than that. They don't know that, you know, they don't know she disappears from time to time and they have to cover her service. You know, they don't know the rest of her life. And in all the books, starting from book one, you learn that there are all these secrets that people have, who they're related to, what their job really is, you know, and 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 think about Lily. She she can't reveal her relationship to her daughter and she mm-hmm. can't talk to JP about what's happened with Logan and JP can't tell Lily about some of his previous life either. So there's a lot of secrets going on. So that's one major theme. I think the other one, and and you did read about this in book two, and that's where Lily always says the good of the many outweighs the good of the one. Oh yeah. That is that is huge because again it creates tremendous conflict in Lily. She sees her as I said before, she sees herself as a healer and yet she is drawn into this world where she uh adopts that mantra, you know, I'm going to do this to save the world. And D- Dennis, did we ever discuss the trolley problem? No, I don't think so. Okay. So this to me is sort of, I think of Lily as the trolley problem. So the trolley problem is the following story. Um, There's a runaway trolley and it's on course to collide with a bunch of people who cannot escape, you know, being on the track for whatever reason. They're tied there, whatever the reason is, they can't get out. So a runaway trolley about to kill all these people. Then there's this bystander uh, in the in sort of a distance, and he sees this happening. He's near a lever. He can pull the lever to divert the trolley, but if he does so and the trolley goes on this side track, it will kill a child. Okay, so so the bystander has to make 
a decision, do nothing. And, and it's not his fault because he had nothing to do with the runaway trolley, but that trolley will kill a number of people. Or do you do something and maybe kill one person? And when I think of Lily, I think of the trolley problem in two ways. Lily considers herself the one. She's the one, like the child getting killed, who's sacrificing her feelings, her life, her, you know, how she feels about humanity because she wants to save, you know, the world, if you will. And on the other hand, you could look at it as rationalizing, do we kill the one terrorist? Do we kill this one person who's going to perpetrate a horrible thing on humanity and save the world? And and it's an ethical discussion. I don't know where you come down on it, but obviously you can you can tell by my writing where I'm coming down on it because mm-hmm. you know both from the perspective of of who they assassinate and what it's done personally to Lily. That's interesting. Now that you say that, like throughout all three of the books really Lily is constantly dealing with with a version of the trolley problem. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. She is and and I think as time has gone on, she's become more accepting of it. You know, she was groomed sort of for this position. Uh first by Pixie Dust and then by Pixie Dust too. For those who've read the books is uh, I find a wonderful character, mysterious character. And then of course, by mm-hmm. VP. But yeah, yeah. So where do you come down on the trolley problem? You're asking me? Yeah, I'm just curious. I see that's a tough one. Like I've seen kind of visual, visual representations of this online and things like that. And th- that is a tough one. I probably would choose uh, the way Lily has most of the time though. Cause I think that's a, a situational thing. Yeah. And I think most countries do. I mean, if you look even at this country, you know, we're going to send some kind of a killing drone or whatever they're called to another country to take out someone who they feel is a real threat to world order. Um, So we are doing it. You know, we Mm -hmm. might not want to admit we're doing it. People might feel uncomfortable with that, but it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani. We'll be right back. In December, LabVine is hosting the Laboratory Management in Practice virtual event. This is a five-day event that runs from December 5th through December 9th. This program provides the learner with knowledge and understanding of the fundamental management skills, behavior, and attitudes required to manage and lead laboratory teams toward achieving goals. You can use the link in the show notes to head over to LabVine to learn more and sign up today. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need, comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs. So I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani on the People of Pathology podcast. So over the course of these three books, and actually you can even go back farther than that. You want to talk about the short stories in uh, The Art of Secret Poisoning. But over the course of your kind of writing career, how do, you, how do you think you've changed as a writer? Oh, I have changed tremendously as a writer. And, you know, like okay. any other discipline, you take courses, you learn, um, you get feedback from other writers. Uh, I do think that my writing, as I say, has improved over time, and I hope it continues to to improve. And it's funny because as a pathologist, you know, I, I would go to the CAP uh, annual meeting and take courses there, or I'd go to AACC and take courses there. And, and there was just so much to learn. Now I find myself going to conferences like Thriller Fest or Crime Bake 
And and next year I'm signed up for Left Coast Crime, another crime writers conference. So, you know, there are courses you learn, as I said, from other writers. And the other funny thing is, um, you know, when I used to do my, when I would do my taxes and I would deduct things like my membership for the CAP or AACC, you know, because those, those were organizations that helped me do my job and, and, you know, help educate me in my profession. When I changed my profession on my tax form to author, uh, and then I started listing things like sisters in crime, my accountant said, what do you mean sisters in crime? What is that? <laughs> it sounded a little <laughs> scary to him. I explained these are organizations of, you know, again, for people who are writing, I belong to Mystery Writers of America. So so all that has helped me with my craft. And the other thing is that good readers make really good writers or better writers. So I'm trying to read many more books than I did before. Uh, novels, because again, you can see how people get it right. And you want to, you want to emulate that. that. That's interesting that you kind of made the connection between, you know, learning as a pathologist, because there is, a, there are constantly new things to learn, uh, you, you know, new staging criteria, new uh, stains, molecular methods, all of those things. And as a writer, you're kind of using the same method at constantly trying to learn new things by taking courses and, you know, practicing and reading other people's work. So that's, that's interesting how, you, how you're using the same uh, learning method. Yeah, exactly. No, you're at, exactly right. I, I just think life is lifelong learning. I mean, you know, you didn't stop when you got out of college. There's just so much to know, so many interesting things. So yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. I love it. Now, what about the, your writing method? Um, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit the last time, but has that changed as well? Your, your kind of routine? Yeah. If you remember that sometimes writers talk about themselves as either being plotters or pantsers, meaning you plot mm -hmm. everything out in detail, or maybe you just have an idea and you write and let it go. And I think in the beginning, I, I was more of a pantser in that I would just sit down at the computer and just start writing and keep writing and see what direction I ended in, what happened to the characters. I might be surprised myself what happened uh, in a certain part of the story. And then I think I've turned into more of a planter, kind of somebody in between where I'm trying for um, my next book to do a little bit more plotting. And the reason I'm doing that is because if you have to be, um, if you have to have continuity with your previous books in a series, you have to make sure that you're not saying or doing something that couldn't have possibly happened before or after what you've said you've done something in a previous book. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So that continuity piece is, is kind of critical. And I find that I'm doing a little bit more plotting in my, um, in my next book. Yeah. Okay. Well, since you mentioned next book, so, so this book, uh, a message in poison, this ends with a, a pretty good cliffhanger, which I like. And it makes me think then that this isn't the last we're going to hear from Dr. Lily Robinson. Uh, can, can readers expect a continuation of the series? Yes, I'm going to continue the series. Uh, I thought maybe only the three books, but I have another book that I wanted to write, um, another Lily book. And it's funny you okay. say that about the cliffhangers, because I think every one of the books sort of ends in a little bit of a cliffhanger. Now, that might irritate some people because people want everything to be wrapped up. But I like to mm -hmm. think that you're wrapped up many things. But that there's always one thing. So, for example, you don't always catch the bad guy. I mean, maybe that Professor Moriarty, you know, like in the Sherlock Holmes series, is out there and he keeps running into him. And there's there's issues that, you know, come up that have to be solved. So I wanted to leave a little bit of, you know, a, a few characters maybe that 
mm, get away with some things that might, you know, you that might reappear later. I'm not necessarily saying they're in the next book. The next book is, um, I haven't come up with a name yet for it. I'm thinking of one, but I'm not sure that will stick. But it's a little bit more of a prequel in the sense that you learn more about Rose's father when Lily was a graduate uh, student. So some of that, how she really, you get great detail, how she's recruited into the little organization that's a little subset of whatever we want to call it that the government has that does these assassinations. And so you get a lot more of that. And that's the backstory stuff where the priest, you know, like a prequel, but then there's also a new, you know, a new mission, a new inciting incident, if you will, you know, like each one of my books has an inciting incident as the first chapter. And that has to be investigated. And the other thing, you know, Dennis, is I, I love traveling the world. So this book yes. is Australia, Belgium, and South Africa. Those are the countries that oh, wow. we will be going to. So there'll be a lot of interesting things, you know, related to those places. Okay. I like it. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a Star Wars fan. So when it comes to prequels, I love them. I think they're I think they're great to get backstory like that. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. But, um, you know, the reason I haven't gotten that far on the Lily book, I think I told you, is that mm-hmm. I, when I finished A Message in Poison, I did start the Lily book, you know, and I, you know, maybe wrote about a quarter of the way into it. And for whatever reason, I just wanted to take a break. So I wrote another novel completely different genre and you know no one gets killed no one gets poisoned and uh, it's it's fun it's um it's about a woman who's looking for second chance love and she struggles with her child and friends and all the complications that come with everybody's lives like depression cancer work burnout all those issues are uh, incorporated into the into this new book that I wrote, which you know I hope will get picked up by by someone, you know, some agent or publisher. Mm, okay, then that book is finished. It's it's finished enough to be what we call shopped around, so it's ready oh, to see. go. And you might say, well, well, you have a publisher. I do have a publisher who. I have a contract with to do my Lily books and they mostly do mystery suspense thriller books. That's kind of what they publish. Uh, But this book is, is more women's fiction, more contemporary romance. And I wanted to see if maybe it should go to, you know, a different publisher. Is that difficult to do to shop it around like that? Oh yes. Because you're in tremendous competition with lots of other people. And, um, oh, sure. It's, you know, it is hard. And, you know, I've done all the background work. I've looked up agents. I've written some, you know, some query letters. And I'm about, I'm probably going to wait till either the beginning of December or January to send it out when people might be done with the holidays, you know. I'm not sure sending out stuff around the holidays is a good idea. Mm, sure. That makes sense. Everybody's pretty busy. Right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to that. I hope that gets picked up and uh, I look forward to reading it. The next thing I wanted to talk about it is you've started a, a, a blog called The Poison Blog. And this has been a monthly blog that you've been writing since, I guess, October of, of 2021 of last year. Why, why did you start writing a, a blog? I started writing the blog for two reasons. Uh, one is when you go to an author's webpage, you're reading about the author. You're reading about the books. You might be reading about, you know, where they're doing book signings or, or events they might be attending. Um, but I wanted my website to also be a place that people could go to and learn something about poisons and toxins or pathology. 
So I said to myself in the beginning, oh, I don't want to do a blog. I don't know how to write a blog. But then I kind of got into it. You know, so now I commit to a monthly blog. And in fact, I've got to get my November one done. And I've already started it, but it's not complete. And I already have in mind what I'm going to do for December. And as you've probably seen, some of them are sort of have a holiday theme, but still, you know, could be thought provoking in some ways. And some of them are a little bit, as you say, lighter, right? Or more fun. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And well, yeah, there was the one that you were talking about, like the use of food words in pathology and how that kind of came about. That that was that was kind of a more fun uh, post. Yeah, I mean, that one, um, I think, you know, you think about it and I thought, well, pathologists, again, these are detailed visual people. And, you know, when you look at something, it helps you remember something. So if you want to think of a sugar icing spleen and you think about sugar icing, that image in your head helps you remember, you know, kind of what the spleen is and what the problems are. Now, it's funny because the ones that are a little bit more uh, are a little bit lighter, if you will, or more fun. They've gotten a lot of views. And I think the most popular one I have is the one with, uh, you know, did you ever think about what was in that poison apple that the Wicked Queen gave to Snow White? Oh, yeah. And I I really, I think that one is my favorite too. Uh, I really enjoyed writing it and I kind of made up a little scenario. I tried to do something this Halloween on the Salem Witch Trials. Maybe it came out a little bit too much of a lecture instead of, you know, it wasn't light, but I wanted it to be thought provoking to some extent. But then again, I, there are things I feel very strongly about and they're absolutely not entertaining. They're, they're more serious. And that was the one I did on uh, the opioid crisis. Yes. Yeah, if you probably remember that. So this past August, I gave a lecture to the New England chapter of the AACC, and it was called Overdose 911. And I reminded them that in just August of this year in Boston, we had this Overdose Awareness Day, and they planted 20,000 purple flags on the Boston Common. I mean, if you could see it, it's like, you know, just that sea of purple flags. And the idea was that that represented Massachusetts residents who died from a drug overdose in the past 10 years. And the day was to raise awareness of drug overdoses and, you know, sort of remember the those who lost their lives to it, and also remove the stigma of drug-related deaths. And in this country, we we only have really statistics to maybe up to 2020 at this point. We we have about 92,000 people who've died from drug overdose. And I think that's why, you know, I wanted to write a blog about it. And I gave that lecture, which talked a lot about the problem. We've talked a lot about COVID and everybody knows COVID, but we still have an epidemic in a pandemic, which is the opioid crisis or the opioid epidemic. And yes, maybe the COVID pandemic is waning a little bit, but it's still out there. And I feel very strongly because, as you know, this was part of my toxicology service. I mean, seeing these people dealing with those who have a substance use disorder. Yeah, that's one of those things. And I've had other people talk about this before also. You know, when COVID, I think it COVID kind of overshadowed the opioid crisis, which I think a lot of people forgot that was still going on. And it actually, I think COVID might have made it worse with with the isolation and, you know, all, all of that. So that's, yeah, that's important that to call attention to the opioid crisis that, that you know, it is still here and it's worse than it's ever been really right and you you said it exactly right it it 
was worse because of the isolation. If you think of what these people need, they need support from others, but yet they were told, remember during the lockdown, or you can't see anyone. Uh, they needed safe places to go, but, and, and there were, you know, sp- sp- 12 step programs. I mean, those kind of things, much of the support was shut down and, and people felt very isolated. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I still feel very strongly about and I don't know how we can solve it. I, Wish I had a magic something for that magic pill for that, or maybe that's not the right word, given that we're talking about drugs. But I wish there could be a magic answer. But that so so those are the serious ones I write, and then as you say, I I do like to write uh, some that I, I, as you say, I consider fun, and some also are a PSA, a public service announcement. So I did one on um, carbon monoxide poisoning because we tend to see a lot of CO deaths uh, secondary to storms or uh, snowstorms or hurricanes when people might use generators uh, incorrectly. Mm-hmm. I did one on plants around Christmas time that uh, people might come in contact with. And, um, you know, put the poison centers, poison control center phone number there, the bottom of the blog. So some of them are PSA, some of them are fun, some of them are things I'm passionate about, that that sort of thing. How do you approach the writing of these? Like, are these, do you you try to write them, like you make them little sort of exercises, write them in a certain style or a certain a certain way. Do you, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. What I do is uh, I try and I come up with an idea of, of what I might want to talk about that I think might be interesting to the general public, not really a toxicologist. And I write in a style that I hope is layperson friendly so that someone can read it who might be a librarian who goes to my website or a fan who goes to my website and say, wow, that's kind of interesting. Um, I, I never knew that about Socrates or about, uh, you know, um, ergot poisoning or something. So I try and do that kind of a style to make it a little bit more accessible. I find sometimes I do write a little bit more sciency. I have to go back over the draft several times and and say, now, how would that be in, you know, if I wasn't writing for the medical audience? That's kind of the style. But you just, re- you know, you reminded me of a story. Can I tell you this story that I thought was kind of a kind of a funny little story? Yeah, yeah. Because, as you know, you know, I have Snow White in there. And one of them yeah. I, I wrote on po- about poppies. And I wrote. Yeah, and you mentioned the Wizard of Oz. I mentioned the Wizard of Oz there, and I have and I have other things. I think um, you and I have talked about this before, where uh, you know one side will make you grow taller, and one side, and I go, no, actually, both sides will kill you. So. Oh yeah, the yeah the the Jefferson Airplane song. Yeah, you kind you kind of uh, brought up that. So I do sometimes try and throw that in, but I. I have to tell you this story that when the pandemic happened in 2020 and everything was shut down, um, the CAP approached me about giving a lecture. Did I tell you this already? No, I don't think so. Okay. So the CAP approached me about giving a lecture, a virtual lecture in toxicology. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do it. And, you know. So I put together a lecture and most of my lectures, as I told you, are case-based. So this was the first lecture going to be in the series. They weren't sure how it was going to go, what was going to happen, or, you know, whether or not it would be successful. They figured, oh, if we got 30 residents that showed up because, you know, they're stuck at home, this would be terrific. So I gave the lecture and one of the cases that I had See if you know this case. I start out with the case. It's like a 16-year-old girl and her traveling companions are rendered unconscious after environmental exposure to an unknown compound while crossing a field. Toxicology results are unavailable. Do you get that? Okay. I think 
I think I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the next slide is, you know, the slide of Dorothy and the lion lying in the poppy field. And then of course, you know, the tin man and the scarecrow come and the whole thing's from the wizard of Oz. So when I get to the end of the lecture, the man who is moderating the lecture, who was just wonderful through the whole series says, and I think we were still live at that time, you know, it was still broadcasting or whatever you want to call it. He goes, you know, we've had over 600 people tune in from around the world. And he's looking in the chat box and he goes, a lot of people don't know about the Wizard of Oz. So, really? you know, so, well, you know, I mean, imagine that you're in, you know, somewhere in China and maybe you're just not that familiar with the, with the what I was doing with the Wizard of Oz. So he had to kind of okay. explain um, a little bit about, you know, about the movie and why I used it. But it, it, it's just funny because, yes, I tend to use those cultural icons, but there are many things that you know because you're living here in this country. I, I like those postal because it makes them, I guess, more re- relatable in a way. So you're going to uh, be continuing with the poison blog. That's going to be ongoing thing now, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I have two more in the works. Yeah. Okay. And I'm hoping that anyone who's listening to this, that you'll sign up for my news books and poisons, um, which is my newsletter. And, And the blogs also get posted on my Amazon page. They get posted on Goodreads. They get posted on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. So, you know, I try and send that information out there so people can grab onto it. Okay. And I will include links in the show notes to the blog, to the newsletter, to the books as well. All right. The the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, just briefly, and I know we mentioned this the last time, but it's important. So I think it bears repeating the proceeds from your books help support see, test and treat. And for anybody who doesn't know, can we talk about what C-Test and Treat is and what it does? Right. So C-Test and Treat, this is a pathologist-led CAP Foundation initiative, and it provides free cervical and breast cancer screening to um, medically underserved women. And these women might face anything from language barriers, maybe cultural barriers, to getting uh, help financial, could be that they don't have transportation, whatever it is, uh, CAP tries to fill in this gap. Um, it's volunteer pathologists. Um, they partner with other clinical teams like OBGYNs or primary care, and they provide you know, a PAP test, a clinical breast exam, if needed, maybe a screening mammogram, and you get results back the same day. And we help funnel these women into care if, uh, if they don't have a, a place to go. So I believe this is a very, very worthwhile program. I have supported it. As you know, Dennis, um, Tufts Medical Center did five years of this program. Mm-hmm. We wrote sort of a definitive paper on the how-to um, provide yes. this in an academic medical center. And I always want to get the name in for Dr. Gene Herbeck because he was, I was a huge fan of his and he was the one who really kicked this off. He had a vision for it. So it's, it's a great program. And I'm proud that my books help support this. Uh, as you said, part of the proceeds um, I donate to the cap foundation every year. Right. And, and the reason that, I think this is especially relevant for, for this podcast and this audience is because the pathologist is the sort of the center of this program and is the one leading it. Yes. Pathologist led. Absolutely. Um, we organize it. We, we help, we get our colleagues to help us and we take care of this. So yeah, it's, it's a great organization. And you know, at the end of the day, you always feel so terrific. I mean, You've helped people, you've either alleviate their fears or um, get them into the healthcare stream where they hadn't been before. I mean, all kinds of good things happen out of it. And, you know, you do sometimes find uh, maybe a tumor or something that you think might be a tumor. Um, And then, but those people, again, they get 
uh, they get the help they need. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, this this is a fantastic program, and I'm, I like spreading the word about it and, and uh, appreciate the support that you're giving to this program. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So as always, this has been a, a really fun conversation. I always like uh, talking with you. Uh, so uh, Dr. Barbara Jean Magnani, once again, thanks for being here. Thank you, Dennis. I really appreciate it. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this, here's a trailer from my first conversation with Dr. Magnani as we talk about her first book, The Queen of All Poisons. You're a big proponent of pathologists being more visible. And obviously that's something you do in your own work. Why was it important to show Dr. Robinson doing this the same type of thing? I think that scene introduces um, to the reader a little bit about what pathologists do. And again, through all the books that I'm writing, I try to explain and show uh, what pathologists do in the real world. So I think, as you said, they should be more visible. I don't think that many patients or the public in general still understand uh, how pathologists contribute to their health care. It might be getting a little bit better, but it's not where I would like it to be. Mm-hmm. I think most what the public knows about pathologists, it's what they've seen on television or in film. And that's very one dimensional and it's not always accurate. So right. in that scene, you know, Lily sort of talks a little bit about all the things that pathologists can do. And, you know, you know that I, that line from the book where pathologists are the invisible thread in the weave of healthcare, they confirm the diagnosis for better or for worse. Yeah, Lily says that, you know, and hopefully at the end of reading Queen of All Poisons, the reader also has a better understanding of pathology in general. To hear the rest of that conversation, check out episode 35. All right, a great big thanks to Dr. Magnani. I always enjoy these conversations with her. I'm very happy to hear that this is not the last we're going to hear about Dr. Lily Robinson. And, you know, we talked about the forensic pathologist in the book, Dr. Logan Pelletier. One thing we didn't mention is that he has an assistant who happens to be named after me. So if these books ever get made into a series of movies, I've got my one line of dialogue. I've rehearsed it. I'm ready to go, Hollywood. And also, depending on what holiday you're celebrating this December, don't forget that books make great gifts. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you could find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology Podcast.